Are you looking for something different to entertain your kids? Check out a new podcast for children. Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as M-A-T-H, is a weekly show full of time travel puzzles, hidden equations, history, and lots of laughs. Math is geared towards kids six and up, but can be enjoyed by the entire family. I love how the episodes are under 20 minutes, which was perfect for our drive to school. And my four-year-old really loved the episode, The Pirate Queen. Every episode follows two best friends, Max and Molly, who work together to solve riddles and math equations during their time-traveling adventures. Episodes transport listeners to moments in history like Pythagoras' ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and so much more. New episodes drop every Thursday, and I love how engaging, funny, and educational the episodes are. Your kids won't even realize they're learning about math and problem solving. My son even said he wanted to finish the episode on our drive home from school. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. everyone. Welcome to the Peds Doc Talk podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mona, where each week I hope to educate and inspire you in your journey through parenthood with information on your most common concerns as a parent and interviews with fellow parents and experts in the field. My hope is you leave each week feeling more educated, confident, and empowered in the decisions you make for your child. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode where I am welcoming Melissa Mancini, who is a registered nurse and board-certified lactation consultant. And we are talking all about breastfeeding basics as well as pumping. And she has an amazing Instagram account, More Than Milk, and it's more underscore than underscore milk. And I'll be attaching that to my show notes. But everyone, welcome, Melissa Mancini. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. So what do you enjoy most about being a lactation consultant? I really love the idea of supporting and empowering women. Um, This can be such a challenging and and often really stressful time. I I have two little ones myself. And so I remember thinking the first time, well, I prepared for birth. I prepared mostly for postpartum. How hard can breastfeeding be? It, It can't be that difficult. It'll all just sort of fall into place. And then I discovered that actually was not the case at all. And so being able to be there at a time for families when I know exactly what that feels like, I will never forget that sense of vulnerability. Being able to engage with them, give them evidence-based information and support them is is incredibly empowering to me um, as an educator and a nurse and lactation consultant. So how many years have you been a lactation consultant for? So I am at about the one year mark, actually. Uh, before that, I was a, I'm a certified childbirth educator. So I taught prenatal classes, taught breastfeeding classes. And even before that, I was a registered nurse. So I've always been passionate about women's health. I've always been um, passionate about helping women. And so this semi-new venture um, was years in the making, but I'm about a year into the actual uh, private practice world. And how old are your children? They are one just turned five yesterday, and the okay. other one, yeah, and the other one turned seven next month. Awesome! So you breastfed both of them, or did yes. you? Yeah, and so you I decided could. to do this after what you had went through um, as a right. new mom, or obviously as a second time mom breastfeeding, right? 
Right. I, you know, I had never heard of a lactation consultant. I didn't know that was a field that existed until I struggled with the first one. And, um, you know, you don't know what you don't know until you get there. And so realizing that this was such a, a critical period of time. And then you hear from other women who say, oh, yeah, I really struggled, too. And you think, why are we not talking about this? Why don't we know that this exists? That's sort of how I landed here. So is that what prompted you to start your Instagram page also, just wanting to educate more moms? It is. Yeah. I think, you know, being on social media, you see all of the misinformation. You see people having conversations. And once you know what's what's actually evidence-based, it sort of makes you cringe to see what's out there. So being able to put out that information and say, actually, this isn't true. Here's what is and here's how you can get the help you need if you're struggling or here's what you should know ahead of time. Instead of those, you know, oftentimes middle of the night Google searches that that families might do having everything in one place to say, this is the evidence, here's where you can find that information and have it all in one place for families. And I know we're going to be getting into, you know, obviously basics of breastfeeding. Um, we do encourage, obviously, anyone listening to take any other courses or get resources from Melissa's page um, or wherever you get resources from. But I want to know, you said it, what were your biggest struggles when you were learning how to breastfeed your first child? It turns out that he had a pretty classic tongue tie. And again, I had no idea what that was. And he had lost a pretty considerable amount of weight by day two. And that was our first indication. I had been in a lot of pain for two days. I didn't know that that wasn't normal. I thought, well, this is just what, maybe this is just how it works. Maybe mm. my nipples just need to toughen up. And after a few days, they'll get used to it. So he, it turns out, had a, a very classic tongue tie our midwife connected us with resources to a pediatric ENT who we saw on day three, had it corrected. And then we sort of had to relearn a lot of what we had tried the first few days. So that led us down this interesting path of providers I didn't know existed and, you know, really made me realize how much of a struggle it was. And, and in the course of going to these practitioners, you realize I, if I had had a provider who didn't recognize what a tongue tie was, where would we have been? I mean, I, I think that oftentimes people are just told either suck it up or, or give up. It's fine. Maybe this isn't what you're meant to do. Maybe this just shouldn't work out. And so I felt pretty fortunate that I got that support that I needed and got to the right place at the right time. And it was much easier with my second one, but I was in a space where I was mentally prepared for it to be really challenging again. So I did a lot of research did a lot of, um, you know, made sure I had everything lined up just in case she had the same thing. And so when she breastfed and everything went really smoothly, I thought, oh my gosh, okay, this also does happen. Well, your comment about tongue ties, obviously I know this isn't a podcast about tongue ties, but it's, it's important because we're talking about breastfeeding. I completely agree with that sentiment that if it's painful, you need to talk to someone about it and you need to get the baby evaluated, but also work with a lactation consultant like yourself to make sure that you're maximizing um, the latch and maximizing positioning so that it doesn't have to be this awfully painful thing. I agree with you. A lot of mothers don't get the help they need because there's this kind of stigma or misconception that, okay, well, other people do it. It hurts, but not, not at all a problem just to ask and say, you know what? It's actually hurting. Can we just make sure? I just want to talk to someone because like you said, if it is a tongue tie um, and it's obviously causing mom pain, it's an easy fix that we can do. And if we do it earlier, it's better to maximize the breastfeeding. Right. And it's a very seamless process in and of itself. So I think it sounds intimidating, but yes, podcast for another day. 
Yeah. So to start off, how can a mother best prepare herself postpartum for breastfeeding? What should she do if she, if that's the choice she's making to breastfeed? What are some things that she should do? First of all, find a prenatal breastfeeding class without a doubt. Obviously, in these times, it's not always it's not always possible to have an in-person class, although that's always my first go-to because I think it really is a community engagement when you can go to an in-person breastfeeding class. If that's not possible, find other resources in your community where they host virtual breastfeeding classes. If that's not possible, they also have great pre-recorded breastfeeding classes on the basics now. And I often have families who will reach out to me, hey, we're doing a few days with our baby and we didn't get to a prenatal breastfeeding class. So a lot of lactation consultants will do a sort of hyperspeed class to make sure you have the fundamentals. So absolutely take a prenatal breastfeeding class. Understand that the volumes of breast milk in the beginning are very small and baby stomachs are very small. I think sometimes people get very hung up on, you know, those small volumes and it was only a few drops and to understand that that's normal. Those few drops are, are what your baby needs in the beginning that will increase over time. And then to have an understanding of, you know, the, the factors that contribute to, to newborns losing weight. They do lose weight. Newborn weight loss is normal. What's not normal are higher percentages of weight loss. So again, if we have that fundamental in place, we know this is normal, we know that maybe for whatever reason this baby has lost a higher percentage of weight loss, then we understand that you need support. So instead of saying, okay, this baby's lost a high percentage of, of weight on day two, what are we going to do? We know, okay, well, we reach out to a lactation consultant, work with the pediatrician and make a plan. If you have those understandings before you give birth, then it's sort of, okay, you have your ducks in a row, now follow them and get that support you need. And prenatal breastfeeding, have an understanding of the normal parts of breastfeeding, what's normal, what's not normal. And then have a calm environment for breastfeeding once you're home. Obviously, the environment in the hospital is not always calm, but you're going to have support there. You're going to have nurses. You might have lactation consultants who can help you. Once you're home, you need a calm you need a calm space where you can go breastfeed your baby. Sometimes what happens, again, pre-COVID, is we have a lot of visitors who come in, and oftentimes mom is really tired. She's not breastfeeding very frequently because she's entertaining other people. So if you create that oasis, wherever that might be, your bedroom, and you have that space to go escape to, that can really help get breastfeeding started well. Um, you don't need a lot of things for breastfeeding. You need a comfortable chair or couch, someplace where you can sit. You don't necessarily need an expensive breastfeeding pillow. You can use pillows from your bed. So I don't recommend a lot of things. I recommend thinking about the, the mental aspects of, breastfeed, of breastfeeding and creating that environment, talking to your partner and figuring out how is this going to look for you who's going to be involved, who's going to be there to support you. Those are the most important things you can do to really prepare yourself for breastfeeding. I agree completely. I think we focus so much on the items. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's nice, obviously, if you want to get the pillow, you can, but yeah. it's that emotional aspect of breastfeeding that is actually the hardest thing. And I think for me, I, I think you follow my page. Mm -hmm. I, I was in the hospital in ICU for two weeks. And so it is, like you said, the hospital setting, especially in an ICU with all these wires, it was very difficult. And I, my mental space was not able to be in breastfeeding. And I, I stopped breastfeeding because 
uh, for me, I'm speaking personally, because of the mental aspect that it was that the difficulty that it was doing. It wasn't, I'm sure if I kept doing it physically, it would have happened, but it was extremely draining for me emotionally having gone through what we did. And I, I knew it before being a mom that the mental aspect is huge, but that support aspect is amazing. And it's that room, that quiet room that you can have, um, being comfortable in the positioning that you need to be in is what's going to be key here for sure. So I want to talk a little bit about the physiology of breastfeeding, because I think it's important that people understand that it is something obviously that's kind of regulated by a lot of hormones. Obviously, it's very, it can be very difficult to establish. But can you explain briefly, you know, obviously for non-science minds, maybe the physiology of breastfeeding, the hormones involved um, with production and letdown, and why things like skin to skin would help in production? Yeah, so breast milk production actually to many people's surprise, begins about 14 weeks of pregnancy. Some moms may notice that their breasts enlarge, the areola gets darker, your body is producing colostrum really early on. Sometimes women think, well, I wasn't leaking, so therefore I I definitely don't have this breast milk. You do. Whether or not you leak breast milk is not any indication of your supply or whether or not you have it. But 14 weeks, your body starts making that colostrum. So very early on, And then one of the things that happens is that once the baby is delivered, once the placenta is delivered, we have this huge drop in progesterone, one of the hormones involved. And then we get this huge surge in a hormone called prolactin. And prolactin is one of the driving forces behind milk production. Oxytocin is another hormone that's really involved in milk production. And I think a lot of us associate oxytocin with bonding or snuggling or things like skin to skin. So when babies about three to five days old, then we get a transition of milk to a larger volume, different type of milk. It's all breast milk. That colostrum you have at 14 weeks of pregnancy, all the way through weaning, it's all variations of breast milk in varying volumes. So that's really the basics of how your body triggers milk supply. And then in order to get that higher volume at three to five days postpartum, the most important part aside from the hormones that like you said are autonomic, right? Those hormone responses are happening either way. The other most important piece is um, the understanding that that breast milk is about demand and supply. So in order for your body to make more milk, you have to remove milk. And if you have that understanding that removing milk makes more milk, it, it helps a lot of things and understanding about breast milk kind of fall into place. How do we make more milk? We remove more milk. That could be through hand expression. That could be through baby breastfeeding if the baby's able to effectively remove milk. Or that could be pumping. All of those are ways to remove milk. And then if we think about that oxytocin being involved in breastfeeding, that's where our skin to skin comes into play. You know, obviously putting the baby skin to skin with mom is helps regulate the baby's body temperature, really helps stabilize the baby's vital signs if everything's going smoothly. But also having the baby skin to skin is a big trigger for mom. Mom gets that big surge of oxytocin. You really feel this sort of overwhelming, you know, flood of emotions and oxytocin is, is one of those hormones involved that can really help your supply. So we really want to keep babies as skin to skin as possible, as much as we can. There's really no upper limit here. If we can keep baby skin to skin in between, 
you know, diaper changes and things like that, that's really going to help. It's also going to help because the baby can smell the breast milk. The baby really has easy access to the breast. So if we keep baby skin to skin, we recognize that that baby is showing feeding cues. We just slide the baby over and help the baby latch. So it really is about ease. It's about access and it's about hormones. And in terms of those first three weeks, do you believe more so that feeding on demand is better? Is there ever a time where timed feedings would be recommended? Because I know that's a common question I get as well on my Instagram and obviously in the office. Some people say, oh, no, you have to make sure you are on a routine. Others are like, no, let your baby tell you. What are your thoughts? And I know this is just obviously education and not personal advice. Um, but what would you say about that? I generally don't interfere unless I need to as a mm -hmm. lactation consultant. So if a mom comes to me or their pediatrician and says, everything's going well, I feel great. Baby's back to gaining their weight after that initial weight loss. Everything's going smoothly. I tell families, great, keep going with that. If it's not broke, don't fix it. Mm -hmm. However, if you have a baby who is still losing weight, is at a high percentage of, of weight loss, post-birth, if a mom is having a lot of pain, if she has concerns about her supply, maybe they started supplementing with formula in the hospital and they're trying to increase their supply, I would tell them to focus more on the clock. So I would say things like, you know, put the baby to the breast every two to three hours or for a total of, you know, eight to 12 times a day. Those are both basically saying the same thing, which is get that baby to the breast more frequently if that baby needs it. So interfere if you need to, but if everything's going well, let it go. Some babies are really great about, you know, cluster feeding. So feeding more frequently during certain times and then they go for longer periods of time. So again, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Let things go and interfere when you need to. But otherwise the expression that a lot of lactation consultants use is watch the baby, not the clock. If that baby's showing feeding cues, feed the baby by all means. Don't think, well, I just fed the baby 30 minutes ago, so I shouldn't feed them again. You know, a lot of times that's, that's the baby asking for more food and we should follow that in those early weeks. And you mentioned cluster feeding. Um, I often get that question also. Is there a certain age where you start to see cluster feeding should start to improve, meaning that by a certain month or a certain week of life that the feeding should be spaced out and if they're still clustering, it's a cause of concern or just depends on the baby? That's going to depend on the baby. But largely the first few weeks, I really tell families that it's very normal. It's really, that's what the baby is, is meant to be doing. They're meant to take in more milk at certain times, just like you or I would, right? I mean, I always tell moms to go back to their pregnant self and imagine you ate dinner and then 30 minutes later you thought, well, I could eat a little bit of snack. If somebody told you, no, you can't eat right now, you're saying, I'm listening to my body and my body is asking me for more calories. So babies are doing the same thing. The thing that changes, I think, is, you know, they get those larger bellies. They do tend to take in more milk, but they tend to cluster feed later for things like growth spurts. Again, they need more mm -hmm. calories. The other thing they might cluster feed for is, let's say, a mom's period returns. So menstruation begins again, she might have a little bit of a dip in her milk supply, and that baby is going to elicit more breastfeeding in order to increase her supply again. So they're pretty brilliant about noticing when things drop 
and then they might cluster feed more frequently around that time and that will increase her supply again. They might also cluster feed during times when they're not feeling well, right? It's, it's, it could be comfort feeding. So there's all kinds of reasons that babies cluster feed. It could be calories. It could be that they're not feeling well. It could be that sense of closeness. And I always tell families later, you know, if this becomes an issue, something that's really hard for moms, then, you know, something like a pacifier might be really great for this baby who has a high suck need. Mm-hmm. And, and so th- those are completely fine. You know, I think sometimes the reputation of lactation consultants is that we are militant and, you know, we are breast only. And that's, I mean, I'm hoping that that is changing and that we're having a better understanding that we really have to meet moms where they're at. And if a pacifier or any type of supplementation is needed, you know, those are important things for really um, empowering families in the way that they need. Well, that's why I love connecting with you because I agree that there is a camp of lactation consultants that is very hardcore. And I say it, I've, I've met them. Okay. And I, it's hard for me because yeah. it actually puts a lot more stress on a mom, um, than your style, which is why when I spoke to you, when we, when yeah. we um, talked about this podcast, I was very grateful to meet you because I, I want that energy too. Um, yeah. and you know, that sort of, this is what we're going to do. We're going to maximize this experience for you because it is an experience. We want it to be enjoyable and not a scary, like you have to do this. And if you don't do this, you're terrible. No, it's, it's fun. You're going to enjoy it. Well, not always fun. And then you mentioned about the pacifier. Are you, do you normally recommend waiting to introduce the pacifier? Are you okay if the latch is okay to introduce it? Or what's the timing of pacifier introduction for your opinion? I generally will tell families to wait and see how breastfeeding is going. If, if everything's going beautifully and that baby's latching, mom has no pain, mom's milk volume increases. I usually say, you know, after a few days, if, you, if that baby has a high suck need and it's comforting for that baby, absolutely introduce it. If mom has a lot of pain, baby's not gaining very, you know, good weight, then I always sort of say, let's just wait. Let's get this problem solved first, and then we can introduce the pacifier once those problems are solved. I agree. Obviously, I'm not a lactation consultant, but a lot of parents do ask me for the preliminary questions. And if they have concerns, they're going to the lactation consultant. But um, I definitely agree with that comment. I think there was a misconception that you can't introduce it until much later. But no, you can introduce right. it. Once I agree with the once it's once it's not painful, once things are yeah. okay, there's you can do it a little earlier, but you might as well just wait four or five days, you know, seven days yeah. and then introduce. This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with non-toxic medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair can be used to treat a wide range of skin issues, including cuts, scrapes, burns, sunburns, rashes, diaper rashes, and other types of skin damage. I discovered Active Skin Repair and their baby spray from my community when our daughter was a newborn and had constant diaper rashes, and it really helped and continues to help. Containing hypochlorous acid, which is an effective option for helping with yeast diaper rash, we just spray or dab active skin repair onto the skin with a clean cloth or cotton ball. Let's sit for 15 seconds and then apply our balm or ointment of choice. With over 500,000 happy customers and thousands of five-star reviews, you now have one simple solution for all of your family's skin health needs. Visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about active skin repair and to get 20% off your order using code PEDSDOC. That's P-E-D-S-D-O-C.
Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep No Mess meals. Chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients you can trust. I absolutely love the spicy jalapeno, lime cheddar chicken, and mushroom chicken thighs with wild rice. Keep kitchen time to a minimum with Factor Meals because they're ready in two minutes, no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleanup. I work from home and love the convenience and how delicious Factor Meals are. Head to factormeals.com slash peedsdoctalk50 and use code peedsdoctalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code peedsdoctalk50 at factormeals.com slash peedsdoctalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. What would you say is the main issues or difficulties a mother would have with breastfeeding? Is it the latch? Is it production? Is it a little bit of both? What, what do you think? I think that the misconceptions around breastfeeding are, are a huge issue. Like I said, I didn't even take a prenatal breastfeeding class. I didn't really see it as something that I needed to do. I think that happens pretty frequently. I know at the hospital where I taught, I think our percentages, we were at about 25% of families who would take the breastfeeding class. And so if you think about it, that's a very large percentage of people who probably go into it with very little information. So a lack of information, I really think fundamentally a lack of support. And, um, you know, we often tell women at, at all stages struggling with lots of different things in motherhood, you know, well, I did it, or you'll figure it out, or, you know, they'll hear horror stories. I, I don't think that does moms any justice. I really think pointing them in the right direction and saying, hey, you might struggle with this, you might not, but if you do, here's how to get support. So I think a lack of education and a lack of support are the two things that I see. Um, and, you know, those can lead to production issues and all kinds of things. But I think fundamentally, those are the two top things. Yeah. And I think they're, for me, and I'm just speaking personally, um, from what I went through, I think there was also a self-inflicted pressure. And we talked about this earlier, but this sort of pressure to breastfeed. And I, I say that because that's great that it puts, you know, that motivation into you, but it also, it also made me very stressed about the experience when we had what happened, you know, in the hospital happened to us, I felt very overwhelmed with the fact that I want to breastfeed. It has to happen. It has to happen. And I, it wasn't happening. And I think a lot of it was due to my stress, but it's that not putting so much pressure on you that saying, I want to breastfeed. I'm going to take all the resources I can. I'm going to educate myself. I'm going to, you know, listen to this episode like we we're discussing right now, <laughs> but I'm also going to go into it as that I'm going to handle it day by day. Um, I thought I was going to do that and it just, for me, didn't happen. And you know, if I am fortunate enough to have a second child, I would like to experience breastfeeding. Um, but I think going into it, understanding that, you know, you will get through it. Obviously, there are resources available to walk you through whatever choice you make for your child, whether it is solely breastfeeding, solely pumping, supplementing or formula feeding. So I love that we were able to talk about this, Melissa, because as a lactation consultant and for me being a pediatrician who formula fed my son, who is very pro breastfeeding, I think it's so nice that we can have this conversation about 
being pro mom, but also pro breastfeeding at the same time and pro formula at the same time. So that's the goal of this episode. Um, in terms of a latch, I know it's obviously hard on a podcast episode to talk about all the different latches. Um, but how can a mother best find a latch that works for herself? Would that be through the courses? Um, would that just be from trial and error, a little bit of both? A little bit of both. I think when you take courses, they generally have very good visuals. If you take an in-person course, they'll usually have things like having you hold a baby doll. And, you know, there, there are certain aspects of that that are really useful and helpful. The one thing that I always try and point out to families is that when you and I eat or when we drink, our body is pretty much in alignment. We don't turn our chin over our shoulder and try and swallow. We don't tuck our chin mm -hmm. all the way down to our chest and try and swallow. So think about the very basic fundamentals of how we eat and how we swallow and how uncomfortable it would be if your chin is tucked all the way. So if we have this baby all scrunched up and their chin is diving into their little chest, that's really difficult to swallow. That's really difficult to have a good latch. And oftentimes what babies do is they bite down. And so that's when... I go to help a family and I will hear something like, oh, every time they latch, it really feels like they're biting. And then I look and sometimes it's sometimes it's very simple. It's just really working on the positioning of that baby. So I think being able to see it is helpful in a class. But then, you know, a certain aspect of it, holding a baby doll is not the same as holding your newborn. There just is a, a trial and error, a find a position that's comfortable for you. I don't like the dogma surrounding you have to hold your baby this exact way or, yeah. you know, Again, if it's not broke, don't fix it. If a mom is holding a baby and the baby is doing well and everyone's comfortable, I am fine with that. You know, I don't I don't need to interfere in a way that it, she doesn't look like the textbook picture. If everything is going smoothly, that's great. But any pinching or biting sensation in the latch is, a, is an immediate red flag. You should never feel pinching or biting. You might feel a little bit of soreness in your nipples. That can be normal, especially in the beginning. But pinching, biting that sense of curling your toes every time baby latches, those are mm -hmm. big red flags that signal that you need, you need support and you need support, support early on. You shouldn't just wait and think, well, maybe this is normal. Maybe it'll get better. Definitely ask for help earlier rather than later. And the other aspect obviously um, is production. So we talked a little bit about the physiology of breast milk, which I think is important to start off with. So I'm glad we did that to understand like the mechanism of, um, production, but what can a mother do who may not be producing as much milk? Um, what would be your, you know, basic tips for that? Would be to look at how often your baby is feeding. If, if, if it is an issue of the baby not feeding frequently enough, I would have her increase the number of times that she feeds the baby. If the baby is feeding frequently, but maybe baby is not removing a large volume of milk, then I might have her pump after breastfeeding. So breastfeed first and then pump for 10 to 15 minutes after. What that's doing is that's telling the body, I need more. And so if we're removing more milk, the body's really going to get those signals to increase the amount of supply. It could be pumping. It could be hand expression. It could be, you know, breastfeeding more frequently. The thing that I want to point out that I see the most is that I will hear families say things like, well, what about these teas and what about these lactation cookies? And I am quick to point out that if you want a cookie, enjoy the cookie. Enjoy the best cookie that you can find. They're not going to save your milk supply. And there's just a lot of very good marketing that is targeted toward women that if you drink these teas and if you eat these cookies, this is going to solve all of your supply problems. And that's not that's just never going to happen. Enjoy the cookie, enjoy the tea. But if we want to make more milk, we have to tell the body, hey, 
we need to remove more and that body will get the, the cues, the hormonal cues to make more. So no cookies or tea are gonna solve your problem. Removing more milk in the form of more breastfeeding or pumping is, is the most important way to do it. And I'm so happy you said that because I, you know, I, when I became a pediatrician and I got pregnant, I was seeing the market of teas and cookies and I'm going to be full disclosure. I bought them. Okay. I bought them when I was in the hospital, a little struggling with breastfeeding because I was desperate. Okay. Um, and I ate them and, and in Indian culture, we take a lot of fenugreek. It's actually very common. We use it in a lot of, um, food like sweets and foods because it's thought that it you know can help with breastfeeding production i ate my mom would make me all these things to help produce the breast milk but i i didn't okay and i i appreciate you saying that because it's so much more than supplements and that's just the nature of medicine in general right our bodies in general we can't rely solely on an exogenous thing that we're taking or eating to be the end-all be-all it may help maybe right. a little bit maybe it makes you feel better exactly. it could be a placebo it could be that you're doing something and that makes you a little more relaxed and that's in turn helps you breastfeed. I don't know. But the science is not there to support that you need to take these things in order to be a good producer and things exactly. like that. Um, and that's just the reality. And so I really appreciate you saying that. What? So we're going to switch gears to pain because I know... Obviously, I didn't go through it because I, I didn't end up um, breastfeeding fully. Um, but pain with breastfeeding is very common. What are some things that we can do f maybe first to prevent the pain from happening? Like, you know, focusing on like preventing as much as possible and what a mother can do if she is having pain with breastfeeding. So one of the first things that you can do if you're in the hospital, ask for a lactation consultant. Generally, hospitals do have IBCLCs or International Board Certified Lactation Consultants on staff. They can come. They're really the breastfeeding experts in the hospital. Nurses do have a fundamental you know, basic amount of information. But if you can get an IBCLC in the hospital, ask them to come and take a look and say, you know, this is painful. I'm not really sure what's going on. Like I said before, it may be that we just need to adjust the baby's positioning a little bit. But, you know, we will tell families, you know, they'll be quick to hand you nipple cream and you can use that in between breastfeeding. But I always tell families, if you are buying a industrial supply of nipple cream, that is a giant red flag. You might need that early on, but you shouldn't be relying on that. The nipple cream is not going to solve the pain of breastfeeding. That is generally a physiologic issue. You know, the baby needs to be able to pull the nipple all the way to the back of the throat. They don't use their gums. They're really using their tongue. So that mm -hmm. tongue works in these very peristaltic motions to pull the nipple into the back of their throat to swallow the milk. If that's not happening and instead they're biting or pinching for whatever reason, like we said before, that could be, it could be a tongue tie. It could be that that baby can't get that tongue up and elevated to do those nice peristaltic motions. It could be that the baby is sort of positioned sideways and they're feeling like they need to bite down instead of using you know, their, their typical physiology for swallowing. So look at positioning first and foremost, that's always the most basic thing. And then let's start looking at whether there's a, a physical reason that this baby is causing this pain. And third, you know, like I said, the, the soreness is common in the first few days. Use the nipple cream if you have it in between feeding. But if it persists, please ask for help and please get help early. And don't think that well, this is normal. Or you know what? All of my friends said that breastfeeding was really painful and they got through it. Don't rely on what other people say. Advocate for yourself. Keep asking for more support and help when you know you need it. And don't take no for an answer. If someone tells you this is just normal, 
oh, I felt really terrible. Breastfeeding was awful for me, but it got better around four months. Don't accept that as an answer. Really advocate for yourself and ask for the help that you need. Agree. Anything in motherhood is like that, right? Yes. Don't even if someone said it was hard and you're going through something that's difficult, it doesn't diminish the fact that it's still hard for you and that you don't right. deserve to get help. I agree with that even from mental health aspect for moms. Like it can be hard and anyone can have multiple children and they say that they went through it. But if you're feeling not like yourself and if you want help, you have a world of resources available for you. And I love that you um, promote that. What are your thoughts about nipple shields? Do you ever recommend them or do you are more against them? Or what's the thought about nipple shields? They're such a, a loaded, a loaded issue in the lactation world in the hospital. When I, I interned in the hospital and we do hand them out pretty frequently. I think what ends up happening is in the hospital, as you know, anyone who's ever worked in hospital, it's pretty short staffed. You're constantly feeling this pull to go from one patient to another. You never really have the amount of time that you want with each patient. It's exactly the same with lactation consultants and patient. So sometimes a nipple shield is a very convenient way of, of helping a mother who you can't really figure out what's going on. So we're like, here, here's a nipple shield. Let's see if this helps. They can be very, very useful. When my son was tongue-tied and we didn't know that he was tongue-tied, we used the shield because it was sort of a barrier between him and my nipple in terms of not biting and pinching. And so some people do find that if they're struggling, the nipple shield can be useful. With that being said, sometimes we do hand them out too frequently and we don't do a whole lot of education behind them. And then moms go home and they think, well, what now? Am I always going to breastfeed with, breastfeed with this nipple shield? How do I lean off of it if I don't want to anymore? And that's part of the problem with that lack of continuity of care when you leave the hospital is then you're home and you don't know what to do. So I am very much on a case-by-case -case basis. I do carry them with me in my supply kit. There are always a time and place for them. They can be extremely useful. And then it just is important to help families understand if they want to stop using them, how do they stop using them? So it's a very case by case situation. I say if someone hands you a nipple shield, that's a really good time to seek the help of someone once you leave the hospital so that you have a plan going forward. It can be a Band-Aid and I don't think a Band-Aid is the way to treat it. Here, take this home, all your problems will be solved. And then you go home and you go, well, what now? What do I do now to, do I keep using this? So again, advocate for yourself search for help once you're home and figure out what is the long-term strategy? What did we slap a Band-Aid on? And is it something that needs more investigation? That is a great tip. I agree because when it's, it goes into so much of what happens in the hospital versus outside, you get all this information, you just had a baby, you're tired, your hormones are going like crazy. And then you get home and you're like, wait, what just happened? Like this baby is with me all the time now. And <laughs> I, and I don't know what to do. And that's, no, that's a normal validated yeah. feeling that new moms go through. And like you said, either using the lactation resources or your pediatrician to find the lactation resources if you yes. need help is great. What other common misconceptions or mistakes do you hear a lot of that you would love to explain or, you know, uh, spill the truth about, um, about breastfeeding? So the thing that we just talked about, which is that I don't really need to do breastfeeding education because I will have this staff full of people in the hospital to help me. And number one, there is almost never adequate staff for someone to sit with you and do an effective amount of education. Number two, what we were just talking about, when you have a baby you just cannot comprehend how exhausted you are, you know? And this is 
assuming that things go well, if everything goes well. And when you have situations like the one that you were in, there is no amount of time or energy that you can have that you could have taken in any amount of information in that time, right? It's about survival. It's about mental health. It's not, there's a time and a place for education and postpartum is not it. So postpartum, especially with, with families who are going through really emotionally charged situations, if you're in the NICU, you cannot do education there. I mean, you can, but we're talking to a mom who is exhausted, overwhelmed, and depleted, frankly. So do not yeah. think that going into the hospital, you are going to be receptive to any information that comes at you postpartum, because even in the best of scenarios, you aren't there. You just are not there emotionally. And I don't think that before you're in that situation, you can truly appreciate what that feels like. So don't assume that you are going to get everything you need postpartum and they're going to educate you then and they're going to teach you everything you need to know. They're going to give you a whole folder full of beautiful handouts that you may never look at again. And it's just not the time and the place for education. So take that education when you're clear eyed and, you know, ideally still pregnant and can really be receptive to that information. So that's really important have an understanding that we really don't know what breastfeeding is going to look like for you. You know, we all have these misconceptions about what birth might look like um, or what breastfeeding might look like. And I think, you know, again, your example is so beautiful in that it can be so hard to put these ideals on ourselves and to really truly believe that you've done all of the work and this should all line up and it should be perfect. That's not always the case. It might be beautiful. You might need no help at all. You might need a lot of help. And so if you have good providers, and I know you feel like this is a pediatrician, and I feel like this is a lactation consultant. If you don't have a provider who's meeting you where you're at, if you feel like someone is judging you for your decisions, and this is absolutely true of lactation consultants. If I have a family who comes to me and says, this isn't working out, I need to wean. I feel zero zero judgment toward that family. I'm going to meet them where they're at 100%. These are not my goals. I am not the one living this scenario. I'm going to help and support you no matter what. And I know, you know, pediatricians that are the same way, they're going to meet you where they're at, and they're going to advocate for you and be your support. So understand that if you don't find a provider in any aspect of your life who is treating you that way, that you should 100% find another provider. Lactation consultant, OBGYN, pediatrician, anybody, they should all be on your team. And if you go into motherhood, I think with that in mind, you are your advocate, you are your baby's advocate. And this is about the two of you and what's best mentally, emotionally, physically. If you can keep that in mind, I think, like you said before, you can be the best parent for your baby. And this is really about your family and not anyone else's. So if you can go in with that in mind, I think you're really setting yourself up for success, no matter what breastfeeding or birth or any part of motherhood looks like for you. You are speaking to my heart. And it's not even just as a pediatrician, but also as a mother who went through all this, right? I mean, you said it beautifully. I got all the resources. I did the lactation consultant classes. I actually taught a class with a lactation consultant at my practice every few months. So I had all the information. I knew I had two lactation consultants lined up when I left the hospital that I was going to, you know, if I had any issues that I would 
um, you know, obviously used for sessions and it just is different and it's okay to tell yourself it's different. It's not bad. It's not good, whatever. It's just different that your expectations may not always line up to reality and that is okay. Um, and to put that pressure off yourself, like I said earlier as well, uh, because you could know everything. And when you're actually in the heat of it, you don't know anything. And even as a pediatrician mother, that is, you know, people ask me like, how, you know, is there anything that you thought would be different when you became a mom? That is it. My breastfeeding journey, as short as it was, it was like eight, 10 days. It was, it was the short, a short journey, but I learned so much about myself and about how I view things. Right. I thought I was, I knew it all. I thought I would be okay, but it doesn't always work that way. And that's okay. We're, you know, we're human beings and we, we adapt and we learn. And that's the beauty of growing as a mother too, you know? Right. So the next uh, section we're going to do is about pumping. And of course, we could do a whole episode about this, but we're going to just talk um, for all of you listening about just the basics of incorporating pumping in those first few months. Um, So my first question is, when would you recommend a mother starting to incorporate pumping? First, just say if it's a mother who's having supply issues, how can they incorporate pumping to assist in supply issues or when should they do that? This is going to depend on how early on. If we figure out pretty early on in the first few days, we might just incorporate pumping here and there. So it could be that we have mom breastfeed and then we have her pump after. So a couple of fundamentals about milk supply. Your supply, you get a surge of prolactin at night. So your supply of milk is highest in the morning and is lowest in the evening. With that in mind, sometimes the most helpful thing to do is to pump earlier in the day. So breastfeed the baby and then pump maybe 15 minutes after feeding the baby. It may be that we immediately give the milk to that baby if there's a supply issue, if we're working on that baby gaining weight. But if that baby is gaining weight and for whatever reason, mom's still hoping to increase her supply, maybe she's saving that for later. So generally, I recommend after breastfeeding. With that being said, because I'm such a proponent of mom's mental health, this is going to depend largely on how mom feels about it. If I see a mom who is completely exhausted, completely defeated, and I'm then asking her to breastfeed and pump afterward, that is an extra level of tired that we've now added on. We've now added on a whole second job to that tired mom. So this is going to depend on the family structure. How much support does she have? If we have, you know, a supportive partner who can really take that baby and um, take care of the baby while she's pumping, then I always tell the partner or support person, I then want you to wash all of the pump parts. I don't want mom doing any of that. Mom's sole job right now is healing herself And then is also about feeding that baby and if she's working on increasing her supply. So it's going to depend on what her support system looks like. What is her emotional state? But largely, if everything, if if she's doing okay with it, I'm going to recommend pumping after breastfeeding to increase that supply and then either give the baby that bottle of milk or store it for later. So pumping after the breastfeeding, meaning you, the baby is taken to the breast and then immediately after that breast is done, you pump that side or pump the other side? I generally will tell moms, use a a, a two-sided, so pump pump both sides at the same time. And that's just really for efficiency sake. You know, if you pump one breast at a time, it just takes longer. Mm -hmm. So use, you know, pump both sides at the same time just for efficiency. 
As a pediatrician, mom, and podcaster, I want to share with you a podcast I recently discovered. It's called Understood Explains, and this season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. The latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. I listened to an episode called The Difference Between IEPs and 504 plans, and I learned so much that I honestly didn't know before. I now feel I can better explain these to my patients and their families and better support them in their neurodiversity journey. Navigating ADHD, dyslexia, and other learning and thinking differences can be confusing, and this podcast helps to validate these struggles and provide actionable tips that are useful for parents, teachers, and clinicians. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood explains. Are you tired of searching Google and ending up in a rabbit hole at 2 a.m. thinking that you're ruining your kid? Stop and visit pedsdoctalk.com. My website is your new Google with a search feature to search all content that I have that is free or available by purchase. And let me tell you, there are a lot of free goodies there, like free printable PDFs for how to handle a choking incident to milestones to monitor in your kid. My website provides information regarding the health and development of your child, including parenting and sleep. My goal is that you stop those middle-of-the-night searches that lead you nowhere but into the land of anxiety. My goal is to guide you to be the confident and calm parent I know that you are. Make sure to visit pedsdoctalk.com and use the magnifying glass to search. Want even more? Make sure to sign up for our newsletter by visiting pedsdoctalk.com newsletter, where you can get the latest and greatest in child health news and parenting tips delivered directly to your inbox. That's pedsdoctalk.com newsletter. And then the other question I get about pumping and when to incorporate it is just say it's a mother who is doing okay, fine with taking the baby to the breast. The latch is great. The common question is when do I start incorporating pumping when, if I'm going back to work? Um, is there a time frame or is it just really whenever you feel comfortable starting to do it? Yes, I hear that one constantly as well. I generally tell families that there's a sort of sweet spot between about four and six weeks where, you know, let's if everything's going well, I don't need moms adding one more job to their plate. So don't add in pumping unless you need to for the first four weeks. It is a lot more work than I think most people anticipate. They think, oh, well, pumping should be the easy part. Pumping is really challenging. And so for anyone who is exclusively pumped, my hat is off to you because it is it is a lot of work. So if you are, everything is going well, don't add that in as another task for yourself. If you have the ability to do so, until about four to six weeks. The sweet spot there is that generally by then we've you know, perfected the latch, everything's going well, baby, baby's gaining adequate weight. There's also this sweet spot in four, four to six weeks where babies are still receptive enough to take another nipple. So we can introduce that bottle and usually they're okay with taking a bottle. Also understand that some babies are more finicky and they may not accept the bottle right away. And then we wanna go back to that calm environment. If we are in a really chaotic state and we have somebody who's really stressed about returning to work, she's trying to get baby to take a bottle. Sometimes the number one thing I will say is have not mom give baby the bottle. That might be grandma, that might be dad, you know, nanny, whoever that might be, hand that off to someone else because sometimes the baby is, is not receptive to taking the bottle from mom. That's normal. But in that four to six week spot, we typically get babies who are okay taking that bottle. Mom can start adding in pumping and we're not going to send her supply into overdrive. 
if you have a really great supply and you then introduce pumping in the first two weeks, you're telling your body that you have another baby there that you need to feed. And then we get things like clogged ducts. Mm. We get more mastitis. We don't want your body to make more or less milk. And sometimes people think, well, if I make more milk, that's good, right? And it's not. It's a, you know, it's just as complicated sometimes as having an undersupply that comes with more discomfort. So don't add in pumping unless there's a medical reason to do so early on. Just kind of let your body figure out that homeostasis of how much milk it needs for that baby. And then you can add in pumping here and there uh, without the risk of oversupply and, and the problems that come with it. So to avoid the overproduction, you know, block ducts, what you had just yeah. mentioned. So if a mother is going to be going back to work, do you recommend like to just say she's feeding the baby six times? I'm just giving an example. Do you recommend instead doing pump for the whole feeding or still doing the, um, the strategy of feeding and then pumping right after? I usually still will say to feed and then pump right after. Um, it's never a bad idea, by the way, if you're going back to work, particularly full time to sort of work with the lactation consultant to figure out how much milk do you need? How do you want to store it? All of those things. Um, I do not for any reason recommend that moms have freezer fulls of milk. And sometimes I think I think part of it is our generation. We really feel like Everything could go wrong and I need to have this deep freezer full of milk for my baby. Um, don't do that. <laughs> you should have a little bit on, you know, to have on hands, but you don't need a freezer full. You just need enough to replace when your baby's away from you. So if that's six feeds, then you need roughly six feeds, maybe an extra here and there, but you don't need a deep freezer full of frozen breast milk in order to go back to work. And so the other question is, how often should a mother pump? It really would just go in line then with how often the baby was feeding, if right, in terms of the frequency? Okay. Yes. So when you go back to work, the idea is that you want to pump at the intervals when your baby would normally be feeding. So if your baby is generally every three hours, you should be removing milk every three hours just to keep up with that baby's demand. When moms do go back to work, a very frequent thing that happens is that when mom gets back, babies want to feed more frequently. They might also wake more frequently at night to breastfeed more often. Those are very normal. Some of that is their stress response to suddenly being away from mom and they want that sense of closeness. And for breastfed babies, that's the way to get that closeness. So it's normal for them to breastfeed more frequently. It's not necessarily an indication that your supply is low. It's just that they want to breastfeed more frequently once they're suddenly separated. That is a great tip. And I love that you mentioned that earlier too, about how babies can change their wake times and sleep times based on if they know that there needs more production to happen. That is yes, so they're, cool. they're brilliant. Yeah. And it's it, so and, much smarter than we realize. Also with, I mean, with breast milk, as we know, it changes like even the quality of your breast milk changes. If you're yes. sick, if baby's sick, it, your breast milk can change. Yes. It's a very fascinating thing. And I've, I've always loved learning about that. But I actually, that's new for me about, and that makes total sense about the fact that they may wake up or want, you know, want to mm -hmm. breastfeed because they need it. They are trying to pr help you produce. They're like, mom, no. I can sense that you may need me and you may need me or the pump or something to help you produce um, the breast milk. So another question I get is if a baby is sleeping through the night, does a mother need to wake up to pump? Do they have to just listen to their body? Um, because babies can start to stretch sleep at various ages. And a, a lot of moms think that they have to wake up and wake up. What are your thoughts about waking up if baby is sleeping? If the baby is gaining adequate weight and we don't have any concerns about where the baby's at growth wise uh, and mom's supply isn't having any issues, 
let it, let it be, you know, yeah. the thing that often will wake moms up actually is not the baby, but their breasts. So they, you do, you get a large increase in milk volume overnight because of that prolactin that you get when you're asleep and that, you know, that relaxation. And so your milk supply does come in. So some women will say, well, I wanted to keep sleeping, but my breasts were so full and so uncomfortable. I couldn't keep sleeping. So that's a very case by case basis. I may, I might tell a mom, you know, if you have a haka, for example, if you want to just drain a little bit so that you're still comfortable. But if you're hoping that that baby keeps sleeping through the night and you don't want to pump, try to avoid pumping at night. Because again, when we remove milk, that body is saying, okay, we need that milk during that time. That's a critical period of time. So if you don't need to, don't. If you need to help soften them up just enough so that you can rest so that when the baby does wake to feed later, you haven't pumped, you know, overnight. So case by case, if a baby is not gaining adequate weight or we have concerns about the baby's growth or mom has supply concerns, I always recommend pumping at night because of that prolactin, because that is the larger volume milk. I want to make sure that we are optimizing mom's body and timing it. So we're going to work with the hormones instead of against them. And I will recommend her pump in the middle of the night, remove that milk, save it for later. If baby is still sleeping, you know, you can feed it later if the baby sleeps through that feed, but don't be quick to drop that pumping session if we have any concerns about milk supply, because that is a really important window of time, especially at night. And so we don't want to let that bypass because again, we switch that, we get rid of that pumping session, the body down regulates how much milk it makes. And then we've sort of missed that, that window of time. So if you have supply concerns, growth of baby concerns, then yes, do pump at night. Otherwise, if, if all is going well, try and sleep the, the, terrible adage of sleep when baby sleeps is true in this case. Don't wake the baby if everything's going well. Yeah, these are great tips. I, I'm also <laughs> learning so much, which is why I'm just so glad we could talk about this. And your, all your, the way you present it is also so awesome. So I appreciate it. Now, the other question is about pumps. Like, is there certain pumps that are better? Uh, I mean, obviously you don't have to name brands, but yeah. certain styles of the pumps, things like that, whatever you feel is, um, I know Haka is a great one, like a manual one, mm -hmm. but when should, you know, what should people be looking at when they're looking at pumps? So first of all, realize that most insurance companies should cover a breast pump. I believe that's still the case. Yeah. So you should, you should still be eligible for a free breast pump from your insurance company. And this is for each pregnancy. So with each new baby, you should be eligible for a new breast pump, which pump that is, you know, you'll have to call your insurance company and find out. Otherwise, if you are in the hospital having breastfeeding issues, if you have a baby in the NICU and you're separated from baby, one of the most important things you can get access to is a hospital grade pump. Those are really important. If we have baby separated from mom or any issue in, in the very beginning, a hospital grade pump is important because we have got to make sure that mom's body gets those cues very early on. And hospital grade pumps are more effective than our standard pumps. Our standard pumps are great. It doesn't really matter the brand, but um, they work differently than a hospital grade pump. Hospital grade pumps are meant for more demanding use and they are, they are, you know, they can be thousands of dollars. You're not going to want to buy that pump for going back to work, but you do need that pump if you um, need, if you need it early on in the hospital. Once you are discharged, and you know, maybe you get the hospital or the insurance granted pump, it doesn't really matter the brand. What matters is that it's comfortable. So 
things like the flange. Now everybody's going to Google what a breastfeeding flange looks like. Um, a breastfeeding flange should fit you well. So for example, you know, everyone has different physiology with regard to breasts and nipples. Some nipples are larger than others. You might need a larger flange size. So if you're feeling like there's friction when you're pumping, you should not feel friction. Mm -hmm. it's, you should go up a flange size. Those are more important than the pump itself. Now, there are all kinds of other pumps now, just in the last few years, there are hands-free pumps. You can get hands-free bras. You can also get pumps now that you literally just shove into your bra that don't have, you know, our cord-free pumps. Those are amazing, particularly for women who are pumping a lot, pumping at work, um, you know, want to be a little bit more discreet. There are all types of amazing breast pumps on the market now. The most important is finding one that, that you're comfortable with that's effective for the use you need it for. So if you have a baby in the NICU, I don't want you using the, the free insurance pump. I want you using a medical grade equipment. But if you are just, if you're going back to work and you're separated from baby just a few hours a day, then those standard pumps work great. Otherwise, you know, if you don't have plans to go back to work and you don't want to pump very much, things like the Hawker are fantastic. You can throw it in a diaper bag. You can really use it to just catch milk when you're feeding on one side. You can store that for later and, and keep it for when you need it. But um, there's just so much equipment now and so many different variations, uh, but most of them are effective for what we need them for. And the other question I have is about something called power pumping, which I actually didn't, yeah. know I didn't know of until a few, like a few years ago. I didn't learn about obviously power pumping in residency. Why would we, we're not, you know, but in anyways, um, what are your thoughts about power pumping? It actually, does it mimic kind of like cluster feeding? It does. So I'm glad you brought that up. So the idea is when babies are cluster feeding, when they're feeding more frequently, they elicit multiple letdowns. So they do these very quick bursty sucks. They don't do deep, slow, sucking they do these very quick bursts it elicits a letdown from mom so the milk comes out and then once that milk stops flowing they do it again and so the idea behind power pumping so just to give you an idea of what that might look like if i have a mom who's worried about her supply dipping and i don't want her pumping after every feed because of time or maybe she's got a toddler she's chasing around i will tell her maybe once a day in the morning because again that's when your milk volume is the highest add in a power pumping session so i will tell her put the breast pump on for five minutes no matter how much milk comes out stop walk away go get a drink of water go get some food go snuggle your baby whatever that might be come back and pump for five more minutes stop for five minutes pump for five minutes and you are doing, you are eliciting multiple letdowns. And so you are really telling your body that, you know, what your baby would be doing if they had a, a growth spurt or something, they are cluster feeding and the pump is doing the same thing. And so if you add in a, a cluster feeding power pumping session, you know, once a day, I have had quite a few moms notice pretty good results after a few days of doing that and realize that they will be pumping more, than they did before. So it is effective, it does help. And it is a nice sort of time saver to the alternative of pumping after every time you breastfeed that's pretty, pretty tiring. No, I'm happy I asked because it's something, a new con newer, newer concept in that I didn't know. And so I was like, it's good to be educated about the use of that. Um, any other common mistakes you see when mothers are trying to incorporate pumping or you know, utilize that in any way with their breastfeeding? I think that pumping elicits a stress response a lot. Mm -hmm. I think, again, that's not something that we realize until we're in that situation. 
pumping is stressful. And a lot of moms will tell you pumping is very annoying. You don't, you know, when you put a baby up against you, you have this sort of calm that comes over you and you have your baby close to you. Having a pump attached to you does not feel like that. There's no oxytocin flow. You know, you just feel like you're standing there. You know, a lot of women will say, oh, I just feel like a cow. You know, I'm just connected to these devices. And that stress response can actually stop your milk from letting down which is what happens a lot. And some moms will say, I stared at it for 15 or 20 minutes and nothing happened. Well, if you are in a state of stress and your cortisol is really high, much like other mammals, our body says, not now. Now is not a good time. It's not safe. So cortisol is, is not the friend of oxytocin. Just like in labor, we don't want cortisol flowing. In breastfeeding, we don't either. So if you have to pump or want to pump, one of the top things you can do is don't watch the water boil. <laughs> Don't stare at the pump waiting for one single drop. It's going to make you insane. You're going to go crazy and you're going to become kind of angry about it. It becomes very frustrating. So one of the things that I will tell moms is if you have a hands-free bra or something, connect to that, get set up, turn your pump on, throw a receiving blanket around the pump so that you don't even see it and then watch your favorite funny sitcom or Pull up yeah. your phone and look at pictures of your beautiful baby. Nothing elicits an oxytocin response better than hearing those coos of your brand new baby or looking at your baby. I mean, that is the way to get that flood of hormones that tells your body now's the time to make milk for this baby. But that stress response is is really common and can really just put an all out halt to breastfeeding um, through no fault of your own, right? It's your hormones saying, not now. This is this is not the time. So if you can find distraction techniques, I, I talk to people, it's like early labor, right? If you fuss about every little contraction in early labor, you're going to go crazy. So don't focus on it. Distract yourself. Go, you know, keep busy while you're pumping. If you can find a funny sitcom, bonus points, um, and make yourself laugh and feel lighthearted, that can be a better way to pump than to do it in a very irritated, you know, fragile state that that can help. I completely agree. I mean, I cannot, you are like, were you in my hospital room? I don't know. I was in many room. hospital rooms oh and my many NICU rooms. And wow. Yes. Just, and my son was in the NICU yeah. and it was literally this sort of, I, I got so angry because, you know, what had happened and yeah. obviously I'm not with my son and I'm like, how can I be separated? It was yeah. this whole emotional snowball. And like you said perfectly, I would just stare at the pump and I was obsessed with the amount and I would just look and I'm like, and that doesn't, you're right. It retrospectively looking back, it served no purpose. And it, 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 I know that it didn't help my supply and the thoughts that ran through my head and right. the disappointment I had in myself and how I was like, why is it this way? And I'm like, I, again, I learned so much from the experience that I think is going to help a lot of moms now when yes. they go through it um, because I, I felt it in every bone of my body. The, right. what the emotions that go through a mom when they're, when they're trying to breastfeed, when it fails, when they have to pump, when it fails, when they have to formula feed and they make that choice. I've gone through that whole realm of decision-making right. in a matter of two weeks while my son was in the ICU and I was in the ICU. And it, it really does, you said it beautifully. That is, that is it that we have to understand that it is so much more than just the physiology. It's so much more than the having the right products. It is the emotional state. And I appreciate you rec um, recognizing the pumping 
um, being a source of a lot of stress. Um, because I see, I hear it a lot. I pulled my audience too and my, my followers that they felt more depressed or more anxious if they were doing pumping um, or exclusively pumping. And I think it's important people realize that they're not alone in that feeling because it is not easy being attached to a machine. Even breastfeeding alone is not easy. Um, but when you're attached to a machine and your baby is sleeping and you're so tired and you just are trying to increase supply and all you want to do is sleep or rest and you're just with the pump, it can get emotionally draining. And I appreciate you recognizing that. Yeah, absolutely. And again, this goes back to the same idea that we have to meet moms where they're at. And if we're not recognizing that, you know, if I'm sitting with a mom in the NICU and telling her, well, you know, how hard can it be? That does everyone a disservice. And being able to recognize, number one, that motherhood is hard at a baseline. If everything goes beautiful, it's hard. It's challenging. But being faced with additional challenges like that, we have got to be compassionate about meeting them where they're at and recognizing that she just may not be at that point where that's going to be effective and that's okay. And how do we support her through it? And how do we make sure that she feels, you know, as empowered about her situation as possible? Because the worst thing that could happen in my mind is that a mom could leave feeling worse than when she came in. You know, that's that to me is worst case scenario. And so whatever breastfeeding looks like for you, you have got to be surrounded by people who believe in you and who will lift you up when you're feeling like, you know, feeling like nothing worked the way that you were hoping. And those are the most important times that, that moms need us. Oh, Melissa, I love <laughs> you. I just think this is so great. And you know, I really appreciate you coming on today to talk about all of this because I really think we got through a lot of topics. Obviously, this is just a you know breastfeeding pumping 101. It's not the nitty gritty that I know a lot of mothers may end up needing. Um, but I think it's just such an important conversation. And I love the way you view breastfeeding. And I love the way you view women empowerment and pro mom life, you know, that is so needed. Um, What would be your final message for everyone listening? I know you gave so many amazing motivational pearls through this episode, but what would be your final one piece of advice? I would say in, in any aspect of motherhood, if you need help and support, there is absolutely no failure in admitting that you need help and support. You are not less of a mother for reaching out and getting help. You are doing exactly what you're meant to do, which is advocating for yourself and your baby. So in any phase of motherhood, never be afraid to reach out and ask for help. I agree. And everyone, you have to follow Melissa on Instagram. Again, I attached it to the show notes, more than milk. And there's an underscore between more underscore than underscore milk. Um, Her page has great information. And as you can see, she's just such a wealth of information and so kind and so empowering. And it was so nice connecting with you. And I'm sure maybe we'll do a part two again. um, If anyone has any further questions, but thank you again for being here today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for tuning in for this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. As always, please leave a review, share it with a friend, comment on my social media. And if you're not already, follow me at Pete's Doc Talk on Instagram. Love doing this for all of you. Have a great rest of your week. Take care. Talk to you soon. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, 
a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and, more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests, too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free.